Hey everyone, you're listening to The Talent Revolution, where we believe that focusing on quality over volume and being different, not better, is the right way to hire the best humans and build stronger teams. To help you do this, I go behind the scenes with forward-thinking recruiters, employer brand experts, and people leaders making a huge difference to their organizations. I'm your host, Tom Hackwell, and in today's episode, I'll be speaking with Chris Kiriakou. Chris is the People Operations Manager at One Valley, a rapidly scaling tech company in Silicon Valley, which helps to accelerate startups and nonprofits all over the world through its online passport platform. At One Valley, Chris has been responsible for doubling the team to over 60 people in just the last six months. Prior to that, Chris worked for over 15 years in the nonprofit sector, most recently as People Operations Manager at Philanthropy University, a free online training platform for social impact organizations all over the world, which merged with One Valley in 2021. Philanthropy U is lauded for its people and culture focus, having achieved official Great Place to Work certification with a perfect 100% employee approval score. Before that even, Chris worked as a, the diplomatic advisory group as an independent diplomat in London, served as a delegate to the UN Commission on Sustainable Development in New York, and led the Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit Aspire International for 10 years as its CEO, which he started and grew as a spin-off from a British charity rebuilding lives in conflict and post-conflict zones in the Middle East by providing health, education, human rights, and women's empowerment programs. Why are we talking to Chris? Well, look, in addition to being an all-round epic human being, I think Chris and his team have been experimenting, iterating on, and making kind of incremental improvements to the way they hire over the past few years. They're a client of ours here at Pinpoint, and actually one of our customer success team flagged them as having a super interesting and super effective approach to interviewing that sort of bucked the convention a fair bit. So I thought it'd be great to bring Chris onto the pod, have him talk through some of these experiments, share his learnings, and just give us some more awesome advice on how we can be better interviewers. Chris, thanks so much for joining today. Thanks so much, Thomas. Huge pleasure to be with you. Oh, no, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Um, look, I think before we dig into all the advice we're going to go through and, and sort of excited to pick that all apart, I think it would be great just to get a bit of background on yourself. Obviously, we've given people a bit of a sort of piece by piece of your career today, but can you give us a bit of how have you kind of accumulated this perspective you have? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, you know, as you would have picked up from the description just there, I haven't had a conventional journey to people ops and recruiting, but there has been a common thread throughout my career, which has been that I've always been very people focused and very values and mission driven. And that kind of helped me to realize two key things. Number one, it's critical to see the whole person. So not just in hiring, but each and every day in the workplace, we're all complex people. We all have multidimensional lives well beyond the nine to five. As I said to you at the beginning of this, before we started today, I'm recording from home rather than the office because I've got a sick three-year-old and it's just the kind of thing we've all got used to over the last two years. So, you know, we always have to be considerate of the work person beyond the day-to-day. And then the second thing kind of related to that was that I realized the traditional hiring interview and really most of the hiring process is broken. I came to that realization because my background was almost entirely in nonprofits. And I moved to Silicon Valley just before the pandemic and joined another nonprofit, Philanthropy University. And that was quite fun because it's actually a bit novel to be in a nonprofit in this area. Then One Valley acquired Philview, and now I work at a tech startup just like everybody else. <laughs> so uh, there's a bit of a shift change for me in this last year or so, but I was actually really thrilled with merger because One Valley isn't just any other tech startup. At its core, it's very mission-driven. And it has an incredibly bold vision where we're trying to strive for a world where anyone, anywhere can innovate to solve the globe's most pressing problems. So there was a lot of natural overlap with the work we were doing at Bill U, helping out nonprofits. And because One Valley had its global entrepreneurship platform, Passport, which is already supporting startups and entrepreneurs, 
in a way that we were kind of still dreaming about at PhilU. So I was personally very excited by the merger because I really believe that the future is social entrepreneurship. It's that merger of for-profit, for-good with the non-profit, more business-driven. And you see the two kind of coming together over the years. You see a lot more corporate social responsibility, a lot more companies coming towards the path and a lot more non-profits beginning to realize that their models are only truly sustainable if there's a bit of an economic or a business imperative that's helping to run them. So all of that really helped me to realize that what's been clear for a long time is the importance of building a culture and a team around you to achieve those objectives. And when I came to Washington to set up Aspire International, I had to build out a team there. And a couple of years before, I got my first real glimpse into how you could do things a little bit differently. So I was very fortunate that when I interviewed, there was one thing they did intentionally that really poked my attention. And then there was one thing that they actually did accidentally that really helped me out as well. So the thing they did intentionally, which I thought was quite clever, was that they did a flip the script interview. I came in, I think this was about my third or fourth interview with the charity, and they asked me to interview a panel of them for an entire hour. And I thought this was such a great test of my interest level in the organization because within five or 10 minutes, if you're a candidate who's not very interested in the organization you're interviewing for, that's going to get found out really quickly. As it was, fortunately, I was super enthusiastic. I had a ton of questions for them. The hour flew by. I just thought that was a really clever way of kind of gauging candidate seriousness when someone's applying somewhere. The second thing was accidental, and I don't know if it was that interview or another one, but I was very young, very early in my career, nervously blurting out words at a million miles a minute. And then one of the interviews said, could you please slow down? Just, kind of, you know, really take it down a notch. It'll be easier to understand you. Little did I know that that interviewer was actually partially deaf. So that was the true reason that they were asking um, that I slow down so I could be more understandable. But it hugely helped. The rest of that interview went so much better because of the fact that I was stopping, pausing, taking my time. And I just took that as a real lesson in, oh, the traditional interview is not a scenario where people respond very well. And therefore, you could do this a lot better just with simple things, putting people at ease, asking them to slow down, acknowledging it's this weird sort of artificial environment and trying to do as many things as you can to work around that. Hey, I love both of those things. I, I think we don't do enough to give candidates that context around, you know, what's expected of them and how they should conduct themselves and giving them that kind of feedback through the process nice and quickly so that they do get the comfort level they need to really shine. I think we have a bunch of folks here who are very like, I don't know, extroverted, very good at sort of thinking on the spot and talking. And, and they, they do extremely well in an interview environment. We've also got a bunch of the smartest people on the team who aren't actually a conventional fit in that environment. They like to take information and process it and think and respond in, in due course and really consider their responses. And I think the interview process in a sort of typical fashion tends to work very well for one half of that cohort and not so much the other half. And so reframing that conversation, I think, is super important. And the flip the script thing is great. I think we spend here at Pinpoint, our first entire interview in the process is ask us questions about the role because we're trying to actively disqualify ourselves. Like there's no panel per se, and we're not literally saying interview us. But I think we really start the whole recruitment process with a, we're here to sell you on why you should work at Pinpoint and not the reverse. And we want to be really honest about all the downsides of being here that you might not have picked up on because we'd rather screen you out if long-term we feel like we're not aligned. But the idea of like formally flipping that script, I think is really interesting. And so 
yeah, keen to do like great first two examples there. Yeah, I think you've got it absolutely right. You know, there's a lot of hesitation, especially in this hot job market among people to disqualify candidates to say, oh, we shouldn't be closing ourselves off from this broader candidate pool. But actually, it's very helpful if you do. It's very helpful if through your employer branding, marketing and outreach, you are going out there and saying actively, look, this is who we are. This is what we identify with. This is what we're looking for. And if that's a fit, great, please apply to us. But if not, then you're wasting your time and we're wasting ours by having these conversations. So I think that's a fantastic example. Yeah. Some of the other things maybe to add that we've been trying out as well. You know, a lot of things that we tried to make the interview a little bit more accessible for people. So third party perspective questioning is one other example where we brought people in and said, okay, can you think outside of yourself? Can you think, I know, of if you ask somebody a question like, would you vote for a woman president? Most people, of course, they want to be socially polite. will say, oh, yes, yes, of course I would. But then you ask them, would your neighbors vote for a woman president? Oh, no, 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 no. They wouldn't like a woman president. I don't think that, you know, that's something that they would vote for. And that kind of third party displacement is another way that we've been using and a lot of these to try and dig a little bit more past this artificial scenario that is the interview. That's awesome. Embarrassingly, never really considered that, right? Like this notion of, yeah, allowing people to sort of speak more freely by reframing the question in a way that doesn't hold that same sort of social convention, right? Like that's really, really interesting. So are you doing that a lot of the time? So you, obviously you've used an example about voting for a women president as a fairly sort of open-ended and sort of maybe cultural focused question, but like, how does that play out in practice? Yeah, absolutely. In every set of interviews that we do, there'll always be third party perspective questions. And one that you will always hear from us is not tell us about yourself. It's how would a colleague or a manager who knows you well describe you? And it's very interesting to see people's gears click and how they step back immediately and don't just go with the standard, okay, here's the three line summary at the top of my CV. They really sort of sit back and think for a moment and say, Okay, how would my managers describe me? What did they put in my last reviews? What did my peer reviews say? How would colleagues think about me? And you kind of start getting what we would hope is a slightly more honest and third party perspective of themselves in that description, as opposed to, you know, the standard spiel that they've been planning to give you from the beginning. It's amazing how much of an impact just like subtle changes in the way the question is phrased can have on the answer though, right? Like, there's a, a great book called Who? Question mark, written by um, G.H. Smart, which is all about sort of their approach to interviewing. And you may have read it. And that, one of the key things I remember is they take references very seriously in their recruitment process. And what they did is they reframed the way they asked questions about references. And instead of saying, how would this reference describe you? Or could you provide three references? They would instead say, what will your three references say when we ask them about you? And it's, there's no ambiguity, right? It's, I am going to ask this person that you are telling me is going to say these things about you, the same thing I've just asked you to answer on their behalf. So make sure you get it bloody right. And they ran these long-scale experiments, and they found that the way candidates answered the question completely changed just based on the way that that was framed. And it sort of frustrates me now having hearing you saying this about third-party questions that I hadn't like put two and two together and worked out how to do that myself. But that's a great tip, right? Okay, so third-party questions, I like that. I think, what else have you been doing that's maybe not so common from a recruitment perspective? Yeah, so we've been experimenting with a whole bunch of different techniques and you know, other things that we've been doing, culture fit and culture ad exercises, 
making sure that obviously we're looking beyond people's paper credentials. And I go back to my time as the CEO of Aspire International. And we had a classic example where we had you know, one colleague who was from the Middle East, from Jordan, incredibly highly educated, went to the best Western schools, you know, absolutely what you want on paper. And we had him as one program manager. And then we had a sort of asylum seeking Basrawi school teacher from southern Iraq. And, you know, she'd been on the ground and kind of really worked in the trenches and been there and done that. Very limited education, definitely struggled a lot with the English language, with report writing, with all these sorts of things. But you can probably guess where I'm going in terms of who was the better program manager to effectively run the programs. You know, And it's one of those things that you realize, oh, the good schools, the good backgrounds, the polished English, it's all part of the kind of show on top that doesn't necessarily mean that they are the best person to do the job at hand. So that was a huge learning point for me. And one thing that I was very proud of in the time with Aspire in DC was how we really diversified our top of funnel talent pool outside of the DC bubble. Anyone who's ever been in Washington, DC knows that everyone there kind of works in three things. You're in government, either as a civil service or up on the hill, you're in law or you're in nonprofits. And basically the kind of people rotate round and round within this bubble. But we really looked outside of that bubble a lot. And I think over 80% of our hires were from all over. They were from Indiana, from Denver, from upstate New York, from Jordan, from Iraq, from Lebanon. And that was really critical, I think, to our success because number one, you're competing in this bubble talent market with everybody else who's local and going on this kind of round and round circle. And you know, number two, there's obviously so much talent outside of that bubble that is not being identified. So you already, by getting your top of funnel broader, have a colossal advantage over all the other sort of nonprofits that you're competing against. So that was another thing that we really strived hard to do. And probably one of my biggest lessons learned from that time was really, is it a good decision to pick your second choice candidate? And uh, learn this the hard way, and I'm sure others have done as well. But there are occasions where you have two candidates who are pretty neck and neck. And if the first one turns down your offer, you know, maybe the second one is just as acceptable a candidate to go for it. But more often than not, we found that there was a bit of a drop off between the top candidate and the second candidate. And in every situation where we made that decision to, okay, we'll go with the second candidate, it never turned out well. It always, you know, was a huge cost to us. It was a net negative. Anyone who listens to this podcast will know all the stamps about the colossal waste of time, money, effort, drain on your team by having a bad hire. And that's one of the lessons I think I couldn't more strongly recommend to people is, you know, really any sort of drop off between your first and your second candidate. Do not go with the second candidate. I know your heart feels heavy at the idea of restarting the whole process and going again, but uh, it will be worth it because you'll just be back there in three months time anyway. I love that. Look, I absolutely love that. And it's rare 15 minutes into a podcast episode that there's a statement as like powerful as that. I mean, I want everybody to remember that. I'm going to have to say that at the end again. That is awesome. And I think, again, it's frustrating, right? Because listening to you say all these things, I think we've made all of the mistakes that you're providing solutions for so many times. It's just so frustrating to listen to people say these very simple conceptual things that people get wrong. And so I like, I love that. I think I want to keep on this train, right? So I think what we'll do, I want to talk a little bit about interviews. I want to talk about the process you guys to deploy there. I want to talk about why you started running these experiments in the first place. I want to talk about some of your learnings. I want to talk about how you're really kind of understanding 
what success looks like, right? I think really great that we're running loads of experiments and trialing different things, but I think an experiment without sort of measured outcomes is not so effective. And then I want to dig in a bit more to the impact that's had as you've built out the team at One Valley and, and the sort of work you're doing there and, and how people can go learn more about that. So let's jump into interviews. Like what really prompted you? Obviously, you've given us some perspective on some great personal interview experiences with USAP, maybe on the other side of the table. But sort of what's kept you continually questioning historical kind of conventional best practice here? Sure. Well, I think with interviews particularly, uh, what has really got me there is that it just feels like so much of it is fundamentally wrong because interviewing is ironically an almost useless skill in most jobs. And by that, I mean that being a great CV writer and being a smooth performer in an interview, that they're not commonly transferable skills to a lot of roles. And there's a really great analogy to dating here, which is that you don't want someone who's great at dating. You want someone who's great at being in a relationship. And there is an important but subtle differentiation between those skill sets. You know, someone who can write a great dating profile, they're dazzling on those first few dates where they're showing off all the most interesting and attractive parts of themselves. These are not skills that you really need in the grind of a day-to-day relationship. And if anything, you could argue those skills are a liability because it increases flight risk. So <laughs> that analogy, you know, always made me kind of, you know, carry over and think, why do we do interviews like we do? when there are so few roles where the skills that you're showing off in them actually translate to the work that you'll be doing afterwards. That's an awesome way of framing that. And yet another great metaphorical representation, Chris. I love it. Okay. But so what we're talking about here is trying to reframe this whole interview process so that you're testing relationship and not dating skills, right? Like, how have you actually gone about doing that? Like, what was the first step in that journey? You know, we've talked about some of these conceptual ideas that you've done, but what is it that you're actually doing differently today as a result of all of these experiments that you think is making a difference? Yeah, so we've experimented with a lot of different things and tried to be very data-driven about it. And some of the things that we have been trying is, um, number one, we don't ask for a cover letter. We've seen far too many generic cover letters. We are as fed up of reading them as I'm sure people are writing them. One of my all-time favorites was when somebody sent a cover letter that still had all the changes, and they had a wonderful little dialogue back and forth with their cousin about where they should edit things, and you know, there was one great bit where it's like, oh, you went to this school? That's awesome. My you know, friend did too. <laughs> you know, it just kind of speaks to the, the ridiculousness of the exercise of cover letters in most cases. So instead of cover letters, what we do do is ask a few simple, very thoughtful questions that ask about you, ask about your values, your accomplishments, and what excites and worries you about this opportunity that you're applying for. So essentially the real things that you would hope a cover letter would give you, but actually don't, unfortunately. So that's one of the things that we do. No cover letter, ask simple, thoughtful questions on the application form. Another one, and this is thanks to Pinpoint, we use blind screening and we love that tool. It's one of the big reasons we chose Pinpoint. And that really helps in terms of reducing bias on the entry stage. For most roles, we also ask candidates to complete one to two assessments, which take around 15 to 25 minutes. For some roles, those are optional during the initial application stage. But even in those roles, because it is optional, we find it gives a big leg up to people who actually do choose to optionally complete them it's basically giving them a head start in the competition because they're expressing, I'm interested in you, I'm interested in this role. And I could go in a bit later into some of the great metrics that we pulled from there in terms of showing the success rates between people who optionally decided to complete assessments and you know the ones that have ended up being successful in processes. 
And a really important thing to know about assessments, people think, oh, hold on, you're talking about see the whole person, being inclusive. This feels very kind of, you know, external, cold, SAT type test. You know, this doesn't feel very touchy-feely like the rest of the process. And one thing that we really emphasize to people is that we use the assessments inclusively. So we allow candidates to retake the assessment as many times as they want. We'll only count your best score. All of us can have a bad day. We're only interested in your maximum potential. We're not interested in the bad day you had the first time you took this unfamiliar test and thought, oof, that was rough. You know, we've taken them ourselves among our staff and everyone that first go around can be like, oh, I was not very familiar with the format of this. Feel I could have done better. And often people will do better on the second or third try. A couple of other things that we've been trying, releasing the questions in advance of interviews. And this has been a really powerful one. So we've publicized sample questions on our website, so everyone can go and see them up there. You know, we've got the general introductory discussion questions, sample marketing questions, engineering product, and so on. And people find this one pretty revolutionary. It's like, why are you giving the game away here? You know, you're basically telling people what you're going to ask them. Can't they just come completely pre-prepped, you know, with a whole bunch of canned answers to those questions? We see it completely differently. We see it as... If you go into an interview, anyone can go in and be asked, give me an example of a time when. And we've all been there. You think of the first thing that comes to mind. It's not really the best example. You completely flub it. And then the minute you step out of that interview, you're like, oh, my gosh, there are five, six, seven better examples that I could have given to that. So we're not interested in the flub dancer. We're interested in your best answer. What do you have from your previous career that genuinely applies to that question? And the irony of all of this is that this allows us to be even more critical of people's answers because we often forgive candidates for the fact that, oh, you know what? They were put on the spot. They were a bit nervous. That wasn't a great answer, but we'll overlook that question. Fine, we'll move on. Here, if you've had the questions in advance, you don't really have an excuse. There's no place to hide. If you flood that question, it means you don't have a good example from your previous career to give to that. So that's an incredibly powerful one that we found. And we already mentioned earlier using third-party perspective questions. And I love the reference one. That's another one that we use as well. You know, if you were to get the role when we contact your references, what are they going to say? What are the areas that you think will need most improvement? Yeah, that's one that I think is very powerful because again, they think, oh, it's not hypothetical. They're actually going to go and speak to these people and they're actually going to find out things you know, about me. And maybe just one other example I'd add there. It's slightly less third-party perspective in the sense of what would someone else say about you, but it's still an interesting technique that you can use to get somebody thinking about themselves in a kind of third-party, out-of-body you know, sort of way. And one example question we have there is, as you get the job, one year from now, you go home one Friday evening thinking accepting this position was the best thing you ever did. What happened during the year for you to feel that way? And the very powerful thing about that question is that people are not thinking about themselves right now in the moment. They're thinking about a future self, a different person. And that, again, leads to some very interesting pause, thought, and insight that tends to come out of that question. And we have a whole bunch of ones like that, which are third-party perspective, but within the person themselves, if that kind of makes any sense. No, it does. And love that. Again, I'd never come across that as a question before, but love the way that you frame that. I think we're going to have to steal some of these questions and chuck them in the show notes for people to reuse themselves. I, I think... Please do. <laughs> 
A couple of things. I just want to circle back because, you know, there's loads more to discuss here, right? But I want to dig into some of the kind of key points you've just made there because I, I just am in love with them, right? So, so f- first and foremost, the assessments piece, I think um, really like not only that you're doing assessments and we've had previous podcast guests talk about the importance of assessments and how they're just a much better predictive indicator of fit with role and competency and things like that than a CV or, or whatever. I wanted to make two points. So one, both with your assessments and your view on the questions in advance, I think what you're actually doing is communicating to the candidate that you're on the same team and you're showing alignment right out of the gate, right? Which I think as an employer brand initiative is also as someone going into the interview, I'm sure it gives them a great deal of comfort. On the assessments point, I think sometimes we hear people push back on assessments and they say, well, look, the candidate market's super hotly competitive. You're asking people to take 25 minutes and go and do a, an assessment when in reality, you're lucky to get their attention for four minutes to complete an application form. Like, what's your response to that? Yeah, absolutely. We have had these arguments within our own team. (laughs) It's very much the case of this is a hot market. People are one click applying to 50 to 100 jobs. They're not interested in taking 15 to 25 minutes of their day to complete an assessment. So in response to that, I think there's a couple of elements. Number one, you can't have the assessments probably without having some pretty good employer branding, employer marketing up front, which is going to get some people to go beyond the one-click apply and actually take an interest in you. So there's definitely, number one, that element of it. I think you have to have the two working together. And I think the second thing is that for some roles, if you're going to get, for example, here in Silicon Valley, post for associate product manager, you're going to get 200, 300, maybe 400 applications for that role. In a role like that, there is not a colossal extra risk of filtering out by applying something like an assessment and saying, okay, this is what I would like to call a seriousness fee for application. It means that we're differentiating ourselves from the people who are the one-click applies, who are just shooting another CV to another place with a kind of hit and hope shotgun strategy. So I think there's a huge added value there where it allows you to pick out who are the people who know One Valley, they know our brand, they like us, they understand us, or even if they just discovered us for the first time, they were interested enough in our mission, in our values, in who we are. They said, yeah, I'm really psyched by this. I want to apply to this place. So I think, number one, it's a really great seriousness fee for a lot of roles. And then number two, you can use it as a filter in for more senior roles. And that's where we do have it as optional on some roles. So if it's a more senior role, if it's a role that we think is more specialist, but we're not expecting to get 50, 100, 150 applications, then just put it on there as optional. There's no barrier to entry for anyone who wants to sling in an application. But anyone who does want to do it, it's allowing you from your pool of candidates to say, Well, look, these kind of 20, 30 candidates decided that they were interested enough in us, that they were interested enough in getting a leg up in our application process, they went and did this. So I definitely would caution against maybe blanket use of it in this job market. But I think if you are very thoughtful about it, have a lot of discussions as we do at the beginning of every hiring process with our hiring managers, then they could be used incredibly effectively. And you know, going back to the blind screening, and, and as you mentioned previous people who've spoken on this, this podcast, it's such a powerful tool, number one, in terms of its a predictive ability of actual job success compared to interviews, references, all the rest of it. And number two is another bias reduction tool. This is the one that finds the hidden gems. This is the one that says they went to a middling school, their track record ain't much on paper, but wow, did they score off the charts on their cognitive aptitude. You know, that means this person 
is a natural at just learning, adapting, and achieving. And I think that's the biggest value add for us is the fact that you can pick out the people that no one else is even looking at because their CV is no great shakes. But that is exactly the goal of most recruitment teams right now, right? Is that people are realizing that competing for that same sort of standard on paper great pool of talent is just increasingly and increasingly difficult. So everyone's trying to find that diamond in the rough or the needle in the haystack or insert every other metaphor under the sun here. And I think if you can give them the facility to do that. (laughs) Yeah, but you know what I mean, right? If you can give them the facility to go and unearth some gold in that pool where people would traditionally maybe screen those folks out, it's a massive, massive value add. And, And I think the other thing I'd say, I guess, on assessments is your approach, making some of it optional, using them carefully and things like that is awesome. I'd say also we see in the data we have, but just introducing them at slightly later stages in the process tends to do far better in terms of candidate engagement, right? I think we see people go, I love assessments. I've listened to a podcast and I've heard they're great. Let's put them right at the beginning of our process. And they don't get huge take up because they don't have the employer brand. They're not as thoughtful and considerate perhaps in the way they communicate with candidates as you guys are. I think if you've got a simplified initial application process, you've got a phone screen or you've got an initial review stage or you're at least communicating with the candidates and then saying, hey, the next stage is a 15-minute assessment, I think the take-up tends to be just a great deal better. The other thing I'd say, I guess, is just that I just love and love and love the fact that you're allowing people to retake the assessment, which sounds, again, so obvious. But I think like a lot of people, especially in a more kind of traditional environment, Think of an assessment as exactly that. It's a one-stop test. It's putting you on the spot. It's a challenge and it's very kind of adversarial. I think like we do assessments here at Pinpoint in our own recruitment process. And I remember when we first, because we use a couple of different vendors to do this. And I remember when we first rolled out our assessments, one of the things that we do is just like a general aptitude test and it's, you know, tests a bunch of things. And the second we released that, every single person in the company wanted to do that test. And they all went and jumped on it and did the test and they were sharing their reports and their outputs right within the system and then they were going oh let me do that again and let me try that and it became this really competitive thing and we'd see some people take it seven to ten times over the course of two weeks to see if they could eke out another percentage here and people got really competitive about it all well intended but there was quite a big variance in those scores you know you gave people the opportunity to do it some people actually got worse the second time they did it some people got better but you're right what we want to see is like what is your potential not how did you do on that one specific example on that one 15-minute test on that one day? And I love that. I think sometimes we get pushback from people when we talk about this idea of it not being adversarial. But I think you then absolutely destroyed that pushback when we talked about releasing questions in advance. And you said, well, yeah, maybe you're giving people the opportunity to prepare and maybe it's not as much of an on-the-spot spontaneity test. But the standard just rose because you've given them the context beforehand and you're now not giving them that free pass. So you're not self-doubting whether this was a performance issue or an actual output issue. And I think anybody that's pushing back on this and saying, hey, well, you know, we're really here to test how well you think on the spot. Actually, no, that is the best pushback I think I've ever heard. You give people the questions, the bar and the threshold just went up. And I just don't know what the counter argument to that is at this point. So super glad you brought that here today. Keep going. What else have you got for us? This is gold. Yeah, no, I mean, it keeps coming back to we want to see your best self. We want to see the whole person. You know, we're not interested in catching you out. There are some limited roles where performing on the spot is important. You know, business development, marketing, CEO roles. Clearly in those, like we need somebody who's a star performer. But for most of our team, most of our team would identify as ambiverts. And that is to say they would identify as a mix of introverted and extroverted. And we would joke, actually, most of us are extroverted introverts. 
which is to say that we're really at heart introverts. We draw our energy from time alone, you know, from just having a, a quiet space to recharge. But with people that we're familiar with, we are able to be extroverted. And I would actually count myself among that category. Me too. Yeah, exactly. And those are the kind of people who walk into a room of strangers and, you know, be asked to network. That's their nightmare. And similarly, those are the kind of people who walk into an interview and are incredibly nervous. They're about to, you know, sort of blurt out things at a rapid rate of knots or, you know, they're going to just panic and not think of the best examples that they can in the moment. That's not helpful to them and it's not helpful to us. We're not seeing the whole person there at all. So the more that we can do to put them at ease and we have this sort of balancing act with our staff with interviews where we almost like to call them discussions rather than interviews as well, because we say, look, we want you to be able to put the interviewee at ease as much as possible, you know, conversation rather than interrogation. And we frame a lot of our questions around that, you know, really just trying to tease out, okay, who are you really? What are kind of questions that will bring you out of your shell a little bit? Even things like our opening framing question, you know, when you first saw this role, wherever you saw it, what was it that appealed to you about it? You know, what appealed to you about One Valley? And just something as simple as, and it's again, a little bit of a third party perspective question of themselves. Oh, I'm now thinking back to my past self when I first saw that job advert. What did I think? What did I feel? But also it's an easy one to get into emotionally, but it's already yielding useful data in terms of, oh, this is how they felt. This is how interested they are. This is, do they even mention in their answer one valley or do they just miss that part out and only talk about well yes i would like to be you know associate marketing manager and i've been looking to do that for a long long time great didn't mention anything about us not not off to a great start or we sort of elicited from that from them at the beginning um and then the balancing act that we have to tell our team is that you do want it to be put them at ease conversational but structured interviews are so critical versus unstructured in interviews. I've seen so many bad examples of, you know, someone, a candidate comes into the room and honestly, a team member has just been busy. They rolled in and they start just having a bit of chit chat, a bit of conversation. And it sort of just flows, you know, tell me about your time doing this or doing that. Here's a couple of things on your CV. And you may get along with the person on a personality level there. But what you're failing to do it massively is to reduce unconscious bias because you're essentially going in and saying, oh, I like this person versus here are their capabilities for the role. So we also have to kind of balance this, put interviewees at ease with structured interviews have a far higher predictive value in terms of their effectiveness than unstructured interviews. I think they're about a 0.5 structured interviews versus unstructured is like a 0.3 out of one. And then the cognitive ability tests the multi-measure tests, personality tests, and structured interviews. If you combine all those things, you can get up to about a, like a 0.71 you know, efficiency in terms of the predictiveness of someone's job success, which is far from perfect. But you've already almost doubled the hit rate from your standard process with a regular interview. So yeah, those are additional ways. I think that we've been really trying hard to really flip the script on the interview and then I already mentioned actually the flip the script example earlier, where sometimes we'll just ask a candidate in the second or third round, hey, you interview us. You know, you've now been through a round or two with us. At this point, you should be getting pretty interested in this role. How interested are you really? What are you really looking forward to in this? And yeah, have a shot at, you know, questions for us for an hour. Look, this is, again, it's all just gold, right? There's so much like actionable advice here, which I love because it makes it really, really easy for people to go deploy all of this stuff in their own recruitment practices, I think. 
just picking up on one of the things you just said, right? So you talked about the benefit of structured interviews. You said, you know, we got without butchering the numbers, not 0.3, 0.4 sort of correlation on this unstructured interview, maybe a 0.5 on a structured interview, which is markedly better. You combine all of the tips and tricks and assessments and everything else you've talked about. Maybe we're getting to 0.7, things like that. How are you getting to these numbers, right? The thing that I care about with all of this as the sort of geeky engineering type is how are you actually sort of validating that the experiments that you're running and the things you're doing and changing are actually making a difference? What are you tracking? How is that working? Talk a bit about that. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the numbers I just gave you, that's you know, decades of research. And that's where we originate a lot of our experiments. You know, we're big fans of a bunch of different resources. Obviously, there's Harvard Business Review. Hidden Brain Podcast is a great one for anyone who hasn't checked it out as well. This podcast, you know, obviously, there are a bunch of great things out there that are really exploring these. And those can give you the ideas to say, oh, that's interesting. This research shows that the efficiency of this technique is X compared to what we've been doing, Y. So let's try that out. So that's the sort of starting point for the experiment. But then we do want to validate that ourselves. So ways that we've been doing that is, number one, kind of tracking the retention rate of new employees after nine months. You know, how's that been going? Number two, we hold a 90-day review with every new hire. And that's a 360 review, peers, manager, any direct reports, just kind of making sure that we have an early assessment stage saying this candidate, you know, is who we imagined they were or they were not. And a thing that we really emphasize to our managers is the 90-day review is fantastic on its own, but you shouldn't leave everything till the 90 days. There should be 30, 60, and 90-day check-ins. There should be a clear plan of action and like where you believe that candidate is going to be in 30, 60, and 90 days. And if you are telling them anything at 90 days that they were not told at 30 and 60, then you probably failed as a manager. You have failed to provide good feedback to help them to improve, to iterate. And you know, we should never get to a situation where the 90-day review point with telling someone, it's not working out, we're really sorry, and you've just been blindsided by that information because it's all been withheld from you up to there. And the thing with the 90-day review point is that we don't set a ridiculously high retention rate for new hires because actually we think that it's wrong that you do that. We aim for a retention rate of 80% of new hires. And that's because, as I mentioned before, even this combination of some of the best techniques for conducting hiring processes only get you to about a 0.71 predictive efficiency in terms of how successful that hire is going to be in the actual job. If you are setting yourself an artificially high level of 90%, 95%, you know, we want to retain that many of our new hires, you are doing your company a disservice because you are essentially then biasing the odds towards, well, we don't want to let people go. We want to keep 90, 95% of people. We don't want to go out to the market again and have to rehire for this. And your company will suffer as a result of that because then people will slip through the net and will end up being negative drain on your company. So I think that's a huge one is the retention targets that we set and being very honest about the fact like we're not here to retain every new hire. We are very realistic about the fact that even the best recruitment methods can only be so good at predicting job success. And we're actually being unfair to ourselves, to our colleagues, and to the company if we don't you know, be more pragmatic and more, more realistic about the fact that the 90-day hard decisions sometimes need to be made. They need to move on from there. No, that, that's super fair. I think we hear people shoot for these 100% sort of quote-unquote perfection metrics all the time. And I think in reality, they almost always are a bad thing. It's the same with offer, right? We hear a lot of people say, I want 100% offer acceptance rates on our offers going out because that's a sign of a strong employer brand. 
But to us, it's just a sign of a weak pool of candidates or, or a, maybe a limited upside on the pool of candidates, maybe a better way of put that, right? Like every single person you offer your job to accepts it. Either you are truly a one in a million organization and everybody wants to be there, or there's a pool of candidates that you're not getting in front of that have other offers that are competitive that you should be trying to get in front of. And I think this rings true in that regard as well, right? So look, there's all I can do really is just say thank you. I think there's so many useful bits to take away from today. I want to give you some time to tell us about One Valley. And obviously, you've deployed all these processes. People like yourself have joined the company and you've got this fantastic team. Like, What are you all actually working on and where can people go to learn more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So to learn more about us, go to theonevalley.com. And if you're an entrepreneur, a startup or a nonprofit, massively recommend that you check us out. So One Valley started almost a decade ago as a kind of a Silicon Valley-based innovation center bringing together startups here in Silicon Valley. So at it acts as a kind of co-working space. You know, we have a sort of WeWork equivalent, which is a physical hub that we work from that has a lot of startups and entrepreneurs in it. And then it also has done pitch events, networking events, mentoring, founder events, all this other sort of stuff to try and do that for Silicon Valley. That was the sort of historical background of the company. Then about three years ago, they made a really important pivot, which was to say that if you're here in Silicon Valley, you have all these completely unfair advantages. You basically uh, have got access to networks, to founders, to investors, you know, all the things and resources that you could possibly need. If you're here, you have availability to it. But if you're in Ghana or Greece or the Gambia, any of these places, it's a lot harder to get those. So there was a big pivot three years ago with the ambition of making Silicon Valley accessible to the world and the world being able to connect to Silicon Valley. So One Valley has done that by launching its Passport platform, which is the world's biggest online global entrepreneurship platform. And that provides a lot of these things virtually. So when you sign up, there's access to mentors, access to founder events, to pitch nights, to investors. And one of the biggest reasons that people sign up is for the Perks program. So we have a free membership, basic membership that anybody can join. Encourage everybody to join that. But a lot of entrepreneurs find that the paid subscription is worth its weight in gold because of the Perks program, where we have partners like HubSpot, Stripe, Zoom, Amazon Web Services, IBM Cloud, Oracle. And subscribing to basically any one of those benefits can save thousands of dollars a year for a new startup. So, you know, that's the kind of startup side of things and where it was going. And then the real excitement was in the last year, from my perspective anyway, where Philanthropy U was acquired by One Valley because at Phil U, we already had an e-learning platform for nonprofits all over the world. And that was providing trainings on things like how to run a board, how to manage programs, all the things that nonprofits need to do better to do well at their work. But we had an ambition to build out frankly, a similar sort of platform to Passport that would also give nonprofits access to fundraising, networking, mentors, all those sorts of things. So it was a really happy coalition to come together because we looked at One Valley and said, oh, you've already built what we would like to build for nonprofits. And then coming back to the principle I sort of said at the top of this podcast of the future is sort of social entrepreneurship. It's the middle of that Venn diagram between the for-profit entrepreneurship sector and the nonprofit sector. And in the middle, you have this for-profit, for-good sector that is growing and growing year by year. So coming together was a really natural fit. And if you're a nonprofit, we already run accelerator programs for nonprofits. And then later this year, we will be launching a dedicated Passport for Nonprofit Profits platform. And uh, really excited to, to have that. 
Awesome. All I want to say is, look, thank you. I think it's been amazing to have you on. I think no doubt everybody listening is going to take a load of thoughts away. They're going to have loads of actionable advice they can take away and go and improve, hopefully, the way that they think about interviewing people and that whole kind of candidate experience. But I think for me, A, it's been educational personally, but B, obviously, like I run a ATS platform that makes recruitment software. And I think like we love A, working with organizations like One Valley because of all the great work that you're doing and the impact that you're having with the folks that you work with. But sort of more selfishly, I love that you're using our platform to run these experiments and try these things and like actually improve the way people think about interviewing. So thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that. But yeah, look, appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And I think for everybody else, for more great tales from the trenches and best practice people guidance, please stay tuned to The Talent Revolution. Go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. And thanks again, Chris. Thanks, Tom.